Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz trumpeter, composer, and band leader Bill Warfield. We caught up with him on May 29, 2020 during the pandemic to talk about his latest 2020 CD, Smile. Bill has always proven to be a dynamic and innovative composer, band leader, and trumpeter, delighting audiences, performers, and writers for more than four decades. He's got wonderful stories. He's a great soul. Enjoy. Yeah, but I appreciate the call. You know, this is, you know, it's good to meet you and you know, like yes. crap, you know, you know, so um, I'm sitting here in my sequestered environment. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, it's great to meet you. I think this is a very opportune time to actually talk about music and have a little radio play. So thanks for taking a little time out today. Oh, oh, sure. Not a problem at all. I mean, I'm actually digging this. <laughs> oh, good. I've been hearing that from a lot of musicians. And my wife is a painter, and she's digging it, too. <laughs> oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah, it is cool, man. She's, yeah. you know, someday I'm going to have to go back to work, and that's really going to suck. <laughs> well, as you're releasing a CD during a pandemic, and my question is, it's probably good that people have more time to listen to music, but you can't do anything with this live. You know, we sort of have our spot in New York that we always play. I mean, it's it's a big band, so, you know, it's like a 10-piece band, and then when you add in the extras, it's 12, 13 pieces. So we don't do a lot of out-of-town work. I mean, we play at the Zinc Bar once a month, and then we play in the Village, and then we play at, Univer- at Lehigh University a couple times a year. We play at the Deerhead Inn a couple times a year. But we have our little thing that we do. And, um, but I mean, the thing that was bad, we were supposed to play the Rochester Jazz Festival. That got canceled. I, I was supposed to go to Europe for three weeks. That got canceled. But, hey, you know, I mean... Um, I'm trying to turn it into something good. You know, it's an opportunity. Usually I'm so busy. I mean, to carve out some time to write is is impossible. And I've got half-finished scores stacked to the ceiling. So this is really an opportunity for me to sit down and write and actually, you know, talk with folks about the recording, So, um, which I'm very excited about. I mean, uh, it's not exactly what I've done a lot of in the past. Um, it's the second release for this thing. But, um, you know, usually my thing is big band, you know, fairly traditional big band, you know, contemporary big band. You know, an octet, I have an octet. So my thing is arranging. That's really my my big thing, you know. Um, so, you know, it's a chance to get together. So when this all started, probably early to mid-March, when did you start seeing the dominoes fall? When did you know we were entering a new world of no live jazz? Oh, God, I don't know if I saw it coming. Um, I think mid-March, we had a thing at the Union. We were supposed to do a benefit concert at, at, the, at Local 802. And that was on the 26th of March, and they canceled that. And then I said, oh, shit, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I got the, then I got the email about, about, you know, the Rochester Festival. Then the guys in Europe, the guy in Germany said, you can't come here. Then the guy in Prague said, you can't come here. And, and and it was a matter of, you know, you couldn't move between countries. So I guess I guess about mid-March I saw it coming. Um, but I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than most people are. Um, yeah, I can, I can hear that for sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about your beginnings, where you were born and raised. I think you, you had some... Um, beginnings in Baltimore. Talk to me about how jazz became your life. 
Well, I'm a I'm a Baltimore boy. That's right. <laughs> when I was 14, I started working with an R&B band. It was kind of strange because I was playing in the Maryland Youth Symphony in the morning on Saturdays, going to Peabody Prep in the morning on Saturdays. Then I'd get picked up Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, sometimes Thursday, and go to these places, these funky places, and play R&B gigs. And um, I was the only guy in the band that really could read music, so I ended up transcribing the chart off of records, you know, and showing everybody what this. So that's actually the way I started writing. And then, um, and then I went to, um, I got into Doc Severinsen heavy, I, you know, in the Tonight Show band. I really, I really loved Doc Severinsen's playing as a 14 year old, and I loved the, the, the Tonight Show band. Eventually studied with Jimmy Maxwell, who was their lead player. And, um, and then, uh, I went to Towson University, and, um, uh, it was Towson State College at the time, and and the guy running the program there, the jazz group program, was a guy named Hank Levy, who wrote for Stan Kenton and Don Ellis, and um, and he had a great jazz band. I mean, oh my God, I couldn't believe this band at the college. It was all grad students, you know. I mean, it was like this wall of sound. And I had been listening to Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears, and really transcribing those things for my cover band. But then I started hearing this stuff, and I'm going, holy cow. You know, and I, all I wanted to do was play the trumpet, but I'm figuring, look, I'm here at this college with this guy that writes for Don Ellis and Stan Kenton. I might as well study with him. So I studied with him for four years, and it's kind of ironic because he kept trying to get me to write big band stuff, and all I wanted to write was sextet stuff. And... um and I'll just just frank be frank. As good as the band was, and as much history as that, I was not a Don Ellis fan or a Stan Kenton fan. I was a Maynard Ferguson fan. I was a Thad Jones fan. I was a Charles Mingus fan. I really liked small group stuff, and I started going downtown in Baltimore to the clubs and the bars, and and sitting in with the with the jazz musicians, and um, listened to a lot of bebop, a lot of records. I remember one Sunday morning in a rehearsal for Lee, for Hank Levy, we were playing this, and he turned around and he goes, where did you learn how to play bebop? And really all I did was listen. You know, I just, and it started happening. You know, it wasn't like today where you can study all that stuff and come out standing like somebody. I mean, you know, you, you know, you went and you listened and you sat in and they, and they beat you up on the bandstand and, and that's really how you learned it. So, I mean, that's really kind of how it all happened. And the other thing is Sonny Stitt had a regular gig in Baltimore, and um, I played a, the Fells Point Jazz Festival with him, uh, thanks to this, the late Mike Binsky, who was a big, um, who was a big uh, festival uh, guy. And jazz. he owned this club called The Bandstand down in Fells Point, and Stitt played there six nights a week. So I used to go down and sit in with him. And I really, at the time, didn't even know who Sonny Stitt was. But, you know, I heard him playing, and I sat in with him. And, you know, he beat me up pretty bad sometimes, you know. Um, uh, so that, that's kind of actually how I, all, I got into it, you know. Um, so, I, you know, the world was different then. You could really go out six nights a week and hear jazz live at a club. It may have been local folk, but um, and, and the Left Bank Jazz Society, which was in Baltimore where all the heavies came through. I heard Woody Shaw there. I heard Elvin Jones there. I heard 
uh, Horace Silver there. I heard, you know, I heard the big bands. I heard Basie there. I heard Thad Mel there. Um, I heard Sonny, uh, Sonny Fortune there. Uh, and, you know, and, and actually uh, ended up talking to Woody Shaw at one of his gigs. And, you know, we went, they, you had like 40-minute breaks. So I had just transcribed one of his tunes off of his record. And I was asking him about it. And he said, well, come here, come with me. And so we went in this back room and he was telling me how he played this tune and everything. You know, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> that world doesn't really exist, you know. Um, but it was really, it was really amazing, you know. It's a, so I had a lot of good contact with a lot of people and was very heavily supported by people and um, encouraged by Hank Levy, of course. And um, just kind of fell into it that way. I mean, I worked six nights a week with a show band when I left college. And on my day off, I went downtown and played jam sessions. So we played a lot, you know. So that's kind of the answer to the question, I think. Yeah, sure. So talk to me, you know, you've been a teacher. Talk to me a little bit about the memories over the years that you acquired playing and and gigs and things, magic moments that really fueled the way that you lend your knowledge to others. Um, Hmm. Well, we had a little group that we put together, um, and we won a national contest, and we ended up opening for Stan Getz at Just Jazz in Philadelphia for a week. And I remember that week being very magical. I mean, you know, we'd play our set, then we'd go, then we'd listen to Stan play for a set, you know, and and hang out with him. Well, not him, but his band. I mean, he had a pianist from Baltimore named Albert Daly in the band who played with a great pianist, great writer, played with um played with uh, um Art Blakey. Um um you know the the tune one for Albert, I think that's written by um Hank Mobley. It's about Albert Daly. And um got to know him a little bit. Um I think the first time I uh, I heard Woody Shaw was was pretty special. I mean, I really never had I had never heard anybody play the trumpet like that. Um, playing at the Vanguard with Mel Lewis's band. I was, I was never a regular member, but I subbed there a lot. Um, oh, gee, Joe, I mean, there's so many, there's so many things. Playing with Ornette, you know, getting to work with Ornette Coleman, um, you know, just being them. But, you know, a lot of things, mostly what I've always found out is that standing on stage doing my own gigs has been the thing that where I was where I was the happiest. I, I remember, you know, I, was, I I I did I did my first big band CD, and I forget where we were, but I gave a copy to Ornette, and he goes, "Oh, okay." He says, "He says so you're documenting your stuff," and I said, "Yeah." He says, "Yeah." He said, "He said, yeah." He said, "I started documenting my stuff a lot of years ago." He says, "He says I'm like you. Nobody would hire me, so I had to start my own band." <laughs> okay ornette i'm like you right you know and um studying with loose soul off um uh which brings to mind that a couple years ago we played a um a memorial concert after lou passed away where i met paul schaefer and uh started working with him and um but we we had the gill evans band and i i wrote i wrote two arrangements i did a uh, it's on the internet. I, I did an arrangement of spinning mill with um, 
you know, Chris Potter was the band, Marini was in the band, Tom Malone, Dave Taylor, Conrad Herwig, uh, Alex Sipiagin, Status was in the band, um, Shinzo Ono was in the band, uh, uh, um, Jeff Watts was playing drums, um, you know, Schaefer was conducting, Will Lee was singing, and I did an arrangement of Spinning Wheel that we did uh, at, at, the, at the memorial. Uh, that was that was really special, and then and then we ended the memorial. I I wrote a, an arrangement of uh, Durham's epitaph for the Eleventh Band, and we closed the the show with that. <clears throat> and that was like bittersweet, but that was a very special memory. Um, when I did my second record, um, uh, called "The City Never Sleeps," we did an I did an arrangement of "Goodbye Pork Pie Hat," um, and it was all, it was all, I mean, the, the guys in the, it was all studio guys. I mean, my trumpet section was Solok and Bob Milliken and, and uh, Tony Cadlick and John Eckert. I mean, you, you can't do any better than that in my trumpet section. So we played, um, we did, we recorded the arrangement and it went down in the first take. And, um, and I mean, it was, it was really, it was, I've, I've never heard anything like it. And I mean, and these guys who work in the studios all day long, I mean, everybody was speechless. I mean, we sat there for, had to be half a minute in complete silence because everybody was so stunned at what, what had just happened. And the first thing, the first person that said anything, of course, was Soloff. And he just goes, well, that was a good take. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we just moved on. It was like a one take thing. Um, I, I wrote a, a, a show for Dave Liebman that we premiered in, in at the Valette Festival in Paris at the Pierre Blake Concert Center, and we played this thing. It was called The Jazz Hot. Um, if you want copies, I can send you copies of any of this stuff. Um, sure. it's called The Jazz Hot uh, featured Liebman. It was a it was a dedication to Sidney Bechet and the composers of Les Peace, who were the, the French composers in the 20s who were very heavily influenced jazz by jazz, like Poulenc and Mio and Honecker and Taliaferra and um, uh, uh, DeRay. And there's one more, uh, Ar- uh, Arik, I think. Anyway, but, but they, you know, they were here. So I took themes from them and put Liebman in front of a big band and, and we played that and got, got a standing ovation for the thing. I mean, and I remember that was really magical. I mean, if I think back, there's a lot of really good times. You know, I mean, I, I just, I, I have been very, very lucky, um, uh, we, you know, in my career, being able to work with the people that I've had a chance to work with. I mean, that's, you know, moving to New York was everything. I mean, there's so many great players every place, but you move to New York, you're in this little bubble with everybody goes there. And if you think you can play, you go there, you find out pretty quickly exactly where you fit into the scene, you know. And, I mean, my first gig was with, with Mel Lewis's band, standing between John Faddis and Tom Harrell. You know, my first gig in New York, you know. And, uh, you know, you pretty quickly find out where your place in the musical world is doing that, you know. I did a nice job. I played the show perfectly that night. but. It didn't stand out standing between John Harrell and John Faddis. I was just one of the cats in the band. And um, 
you know, getting to know Mel was really good. I mean, I I gave him a, a CD of my first recording and didn't really hear anything from him. So I just called him up and I said, Mel, you know, look, I, you know, I never, I don't want to bother you, but I never heard anything back from you about whether you like the CD, like you like the recording or not. And I said, you know, I really like to know what you think of it. And um, he says, well, you really want to know? I said, yeah, well, you know, I called you up, man. So he goes, okay. So he like goes, he went chart by chart by chart through the whole recording and told me exactly what he thought of everything. It was the, one of the greatest composition lessons I've ever had in my life. You wow. know, like him, like, like, I mean, he had, he sad wrote for him, man. And like, you know, and Brookmeyer, who I studied with, wrote for him. And, you know, so he's sitting there and he's going, well, first of all, I really like this and I really like that. He says, my big complaint is that I like rhythm. He goes, and everybody writes all this stuff now that's smooth. You know, they write these big, fat chords, but there's no rhythm. It's just chords with lines on top of it. He said, and that's that's what I really like. I'm a drummer and I like rhythm. So he said, even though I really like what you and and the voicings are hip and the arrangements are, are clever and all this, he said, I really miss the rhythm. And so I started, that made me, that that really changed me as a writer. From that point on, and also with my R&D background, from that point on, I just said, everything I write is going to be rhythm-based. I'm not going to write anything that the rhythm isn't a huge component in the chart and um and i've done that ever since and um i really feel the results of doing that when when audiences audiences respond to rhythm they don't respond to your new grandmother chord that you wrote you know you can play yeah. a wrong note most people in the club have no idea that it happened you screw up the rhythm everybody in new york city knows it happened you know, so so rhythm is, is incredibly important to me. And and Mel is the reason that happened, you know, is because he's... And, of course, Hank Levy was... His thing was odd time signatures. He wrote for Don Ellis and writing jazz arrangements that made use of European additive rhythm rather than African polyrhythm. So my background was heavily rhythm. And then when Mel said that, I said, yeah, that's right. My One of my strong suits is rhythm. So I'm going to make that a component of everything I do from this point on. And it's really funny because when I wrote for Dave Liebman's big band, um, he had a lot of good writers writing for that band. And and he like pulled me on the side one time. He goes, I don't understand what you're doing that's different than everybody else. And I said, well, I write rhythm. <laughs> that's what I do. I write for the rhythm section. I make... I make sure they're doing what I want them to do and that they're playing rhythm. I don't just give them chord changes and write swing on top of it. You know, I show them uh, what the kind of bass line I want. I show them the chord voicing I want. And then I give them the freedom to do what they want, but I do set them on that track. So I feel that that, like, really that moment was one of the most valuable things anybody ever, any, ever, anybody ever did for me. And to this, I mean, Mel didn't have to do that. I mean, I wasn't anybody, you know. He just really took his time to help me out that way. And, um, I mean, I almost cry thinking about it, you know, uh, that somebody would take that time for somebody that just got to New York 
and and would really help them out like that. And be honest. I mean, you know, I mean, all these guys, you study these guys, and, and, you know, they take your money and they go, well, gee, I don't know what I can teach you, man. You sound so great. Well, why am I studying with you? I didn't come here to have you. I didn't come here to buy a fan. I, I came here to have you honestly tell me what is going on with my playing. And two guys really did really, I mean, Mel, Bob Brookmeyer, brutally honest, and Lou Soloff, brutally honest. I mean, I remember my first lesson with Lou. He asked me about my warm-up, and I was doing this thing I got from Jimmy Maxwell. And he goes, well, why are you doing that? And I said, well, so I can play a lot of, so I can play high notes. So I have a strong upper register. <laughs> and he just goes, look, he said, you can hit any note you want. He said, you can't play the trumpet. And, and you know, then I went back to the basics and started doing my Arbenz book. And I started practicing the basics of the horn again. And, you know, stuff like that. I don't, that's not really a performance thing, but Jesus, those moments, I just go, wow, those guys were really honest with me. What a gift to have somebody just feel so secure in themselves that they can say, look, here's what's going on. And I'm that way with my students. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, I've, I've actually, guess I've gotten a few to cry sometimes in a lesson. But, I mean, I have a lot of great students out there that are doing really good things, and and I know that they're they're grateful for the honesty. Um, so I guess those are the things that I, I really remember. I don't know if that's... Yeah, no, that's a great answer. I, so what do you hope both the audience and the musician realizes when we do return to the stage after this COVID-19 quarantine? What do you hope we realize about music when we get back well just how valuable it is you know i mean there's nothing like sitting in front of a band and i don't know how long it's going to last but i think initially when we when we open back up the clubs are going to be empty i think people are going to be afraid to go out still for quite a while um and they'll open up slowly so there won't be a big uh rush back to the jazz clubs but what's going to eventually happen is that I think it will spark a renaissance of live music, at least for a while, you know, at least for a little while. And the other thing is, um, you know, like guys like me, uh, you know, fairly established, I write a lot of music. Um, I like, I write a lot of music without thinking about it. You know, I go on a lot of bandstands and I do what I do and I'm on auto autopilot and having this time to sit here with my score paper and practicing my trumpet and missing my playing has really made me reevaluate you know who I am as an artist you know and and actually with this record I've talked to a few folks and they've asked me this question a lot and so I think I think one of the, a couple of good things that are going to happen audiences will reevaluate the value of of the live experience um the clubs that survive uh will do well eventually the key is to survive i think this yeah. gives the artists i think this gives the artists a chance to sit back and reflect without the run 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 i mean honestly i'm so grateful for this time i i didn't i never slept 
You know, I mean, I got, I think maybe the first month of this, I slept. And I'm like laying there going, damn, I missed this. You know, because it, it was just constantly running, constantly traveling, constantly teaching, constantly playing, you know, and no no time for sleep, you know, and, and no time for eating correctly. Uh, you know, I mean, just so much, you know, I guess you can look at this a couple ways. This can either be the worst thing that happened to you or it can be the best thing that ever happened to you, but it's not going to be a mediocre occurrence. It's going to have some. It's going to have some giant effect on everybody, audience, club owner. You know, I thought I. I was supposed to play at Todd Birkin's club in, in June, and you know, so I talked to Todd on the phone, not a lot, but once in a while. Um, it's given us both the chance. Not just me down there at Keystone Corner. I went down and I played one night with Eddie Palmieri, and and I played well. And he, he's like, we're stuck talking to each other. He goes, I'd like to have you down here because I'm a Baltimore native. So we started talking about that stuff. But the conversations have changed from me being a guy trying to get a gig at his club to be me, me being a musician and him being a jazz entrepreneur. And I'm getting a lot of information from him. He's getting a lot of information from me. We're having a lot of time to evaluate what we're really doing here. And um, God, I hope he survives. He's one of the sweetest people in the world. And and the history of what he's done for the music, you know, what can I say? You know as well as I do. All those great albums from Keystone Corner in San Francisco, you know, his record as a record producer. I mean, you know, and to sit down and talk with people like that is invaluable. And now we have time to do it. And we never had time to do it before. So I'm looking for good things. I'm looking for some pain coming out of this. But I'm ultimately looking for good things to happen. You know, I started teaching composition. I've had, the, I've had a ball. I'm teaching composition online. I've avoided it like the plague for years because I didn't really, well, a couple things. I, I had a, a big imposter complex about it. I'm really self-taught, and I really didn't feel like I had a lot to offer somebody. You know, as a writer, yes. As a teacher of writing, maybe not. But, you know, I'm taking these kids to their arrangements, man, and I'm learning so much. And, um, and, and it's going to change the way I teach. You know, and um, it's already changing the way I write. I've been working on this stupid chart for two weeks now, and it finally came together, and I'm excited about it. I usually don't have that option to spend that much time on an arrangement. I usually got to swap it down on paper and get it out. And, yeah, it works because I'm a professional, and I've been doing it for years. But, yeah, man, I've got two weeks to work with this piece of music until it's just right. So moving forward, I don't really want to write a piece of music that's anything less than that now. You know, that's what I want. I don't want to play a solo that's less than the best I can do, and i got to practice to do that. So it's been a real renaissance for me. Um, and, I, and I feel that from other people, too. You know, I, I, you know I, I call people who I don't usually talk to. I mean, Randy and I are friends, but I talk, call Randy Brecker and said, I'm trying to do a home studio now here. So I called him up and I said, what are you doing with your home studio? And we talked about that. You know, usually we, usually we, it's a fast tweet back and forth. 
and we move on with what we do. But, you know, I mean, it's good to have time for conversations. I, The electronics and the Internet allow us to do that. And this pandemic has given us time um, to do it. So in a lot of ways, I don't mean to paint it like it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends in this thing, and that's not good. I really feel for them and their families. But, I mean, you know, let's let's honor them by doing something with this time. Um, Look, I'm done. (laughs) Cool. No, that's cool. Bill, thank you, man. You you really opened up and covered a lot of bases that I was looking for. Thank you for taking some time out to talk with me on jazz. Good luck with everything, and I really appreciate it. Well, Joe, thank you so much, man, and thank you for what you guys do, because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't get our stuff out there. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats on the East Coast, West Coast, and right in the Midwest, and spots all over the USA giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Bill for his class, time, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.